hey guys, what is something you once underestimated, someone you once underestimated or underrated, but now you know better, you know better. Uh, you know, I, I think before uh, Ruth and I had kids, I didn't really realize how big of an impact parents have on their children. I mean, it sounds kind of simple. I totally underrated that, uh, underestimated that. And, and then we had kids, and they're just doing everything that we do and say what we say. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing and also kind of overwhelming and just, it's amazing. And, and then you also uh, learn, you underestimate how much your kids pick up on what you're saying and what you're doing, right? I mean, your kids are picking it up. So uh, we're having a, another round of this because we've got a grandson. I think I've mentioned him, Nico. And the other day, our daughter, Angela, sent me a, uh, a picture with him with a, with a little quote that directly from his lips. And so if you want to check out this picture here, he's on his little, uh, his, on his little phone. You can probably see that. But here's what he's saying. He says, hey, LVT, I got to go to a meeting. I'll call you right back. <laughs> and it's like, what? Yeah, he's saying exactly what his dad or his mom would say. Hey, so-and-so, I got to go to a meeting. I'll call you right back. But then I asked the question, who is LVT? And our daughter, Angela, informs us, well, LVT is, is a type of laminate flooring and Daniel's in that real estate space. They both are. And so um, it's like, okay, yeah, he's picking up on pretty much everything. He heard LVT, and he thought that was, he heard it enough. They thought it was a person he was talking to. So says, hey, LVT, I got to go to a meeting. I'll call you right back. Hysterical. <laughs> Guys, do not underestimate how much kids pick up and how much influence adults, coaches, and parents can have on their lives. All that to say, guys, I think as we turn the pages into and turn our hearts into the scriptures today, and I encourage you, you know, get your Acts journal, get your, uh, your, your scripture out, uh, follow along here. Um, I think we vastly underestimate God. I think we vastly underestimate God. How big he is, how mighty he is, how loving he is, how much he cares, how powerful he is. We underestimate all this about God. There's a survey done a, a while back, a massive survey. I found out um, that nine out of 10 Americans say they believe in God, but when they categorized all their responses of what they actually thought God was like or who he was, it fell into generally four categories. And Gallup did this, and sociologists from Baylor University, Studies for Religion, uh, understood what people uh, responded. And based on the responses, the researchers delineated four different views of God. The first view is the authoritarian God, a 31% of Americans overall. God is angry at humanity's sins and engaged in everyone's life and worldly affairs, but he's an authoritarian God. Second major different view of God was the benevolent God. 23% of Americans, uh, God sets absolute standards for mankind, humanity, but he is seen primarily as a loving, forgiving creator. Okay. 
Fourth view, or excuse me, third view of, of God was the critical God. 16% of Americans held to this, where God keeps a judgmental eye on humanity, but he doesn't really intervene in, in events on earth much. The critical God. And the last fourth view, general view expressed, was held by 24% of Americans, and that is the distant God, who is a cosmic force that launched the universe and then pretty much left it on its own. The authoritarian God, the benevolent God, the critical God, the distant God. All of them grossly underestimate the living God. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're going to dive into this, this today. And I hope you get a great deal of encouragement, challenge. It'll stretch you, but also really light you up. We are talking about living as light. So let's live in light of this amazing God, all right? Um, an author from way back, uh, his name is J.B. Phillips, and he wrote a little volume called Your God is Too Small. And in this little volume, which, which still is relevant today, he talks about different views that people had and, and kind of their small view of God. And he challenged people to believe in the God of the Scriptures, who is this great, big, awesome God. Just amazingly awesome God. And he wrote uh, a, another book uh, called uh, Letters to Young Churches, where he was introducing the, uh, the letters of the New Testament uh, and explaining it to people in everyday language. And here's what he said in the preface. I want to read it to you. Without going into wearisome historical details, we need to remember that these New Testament letters were written and the lives they indicate were led against a background of paganism. There were no churches, no Sundays, no books about the faith at all. Slavery, sexual immorality, cruelty, callous to human suffering, and a low standard of public opinion were universal. Traveling and communications were chancy and perilous. Most people were illiterate. Many Christians today, and he wrote this 50 years ago or more, uh, talk today about the, quote, the difficulties of our times, as though we should have to wait for better ones before Christianity can take root. It is heartening to remember that this Christian faith took root and flourished amazingly in conditions that would have killed anything less vital in a matter of weeks. Wow. These early Christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become, through Christ, literally sons and daughters of the living God. They were pioneers of a brand new humanity, founders of a new kingdom with Jesus Christ as king. They still speak to us across the centuries. And then he concludes his preface with this. Perhaps if we believed what they believed, we might achieve what they achieved. Come on now, that's good stuff. That's really great stuff. And so with that backdrop, 
I would invite you right now to turn with me to Acts chapter 19. We looked last weekend, Paul has arrived, the Apostle Paul has arrived in Ephesus, this incredible city. Uh, I want to share just a little bit about Ephesus. One author writes, Ephesus was a deceptively beautiful metropolis. The magnificent temple to the fertility goddess Artemis, or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the first century world, dominated its skyline and religious, social, and economic life. No sensual pleasure was denied. It was a world financial center. Dreams of material success and affluence captivated the minds and consumed the energies of the people of Ephesus. All the happiness money could buy was at their fingertips. Life for the Ephesians would have been the good life. But when the early Christians looked at Ephesus, they saw something very different. They saw a culture of fear, scarcely veiled by the architectural, artistic, and sensual beauty on display. Christ's followers saw a half a million souls trapped in a devil-dominated world of necromancy, occultism, witchcraft, and useless worship of a lifeless, powerless goddess Artemis. Magic symbols and incantations failed to give them control over their world. Worship failed to connect them with the living God. Nearly the entire populace lived on a treadmill of superstition, confusion, and terror. And into this environment went Paul. Wow, wow, wow. And we learn through reading the book of Acts that most likely it was through this two-year time that he spent, actually three years in Ephesus total, he probably saw the planting, not himself, but saw to the planting of the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. They're all in this area, including Ephesus, of course, the center, which is mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. And, uh, and they were all started then. And you have a sense for this early Christianity. And again about Ephesus. One writer writes, in spite of its grand emphasis on religion, philosophy, and material acquisition, the culture of Ephesus displayed glaring evidence that none of these actually met the spiritual needs of the people. The literature of, the early, uh, of early Ephesus contains much evidence that the study and practice of all sorts of occultism and magical arts was pervasive. One writer says, witches came out of the woodwork superstition substituted for faith, famous parchments found from this time called the Ephesian letters contained incantations of secret names and words guaranteed to bring safe travel, fertility, and success in business or in love. Even the Jewish people living there dabbled in this forbidden stuff. There's even a book written by a Jewish author that lists the names of angelic being used in casting good or evil spells on people. Wow. So into this witchy environment, kind of creepy, God worked in mysterious ways through a man named Paul. And here's where we come. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles 
by Paul's hands. Now notice that phrase, miracles, which are like really extraordinary, and then we get another word, extraordinary. So extraordinary supernatural events, not just Ordinary miracles, they're amazing, but extraordinary miracles. These are in a class by themselves. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths, sweat rags, basically, he was a leather worker, sweat rags, or aprons that he used that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. This is a, an unusual verse in the Bible, guys. I mean, that doesn't happen very often. It's extraordinary. But God worked in these mysterious in ways and really a bizarre twist. A handkerchief, sweat rags, aprons worn by Paul in his tent-making work were taken to sick and hurting people, and they got well. But let's remember to keep the story straight as one person reminds us, God did the miracles, not Paul, not the sweat rags. The healing power was in God, not in objects. Paul wore around his head or on, on his body working with word working. And somebody said, Paul's dirty laundry was a visual aid to help people make the leap of faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people, especially in that extreme environment and culture need needed visual aids one author writes healing people who needed to touch paul's calves off clothing before they could believe even though in reality these things were totally unnecessary this was a loving god graciously meeting people where they were a great big god who saw into their extreme paganism and right met them right where they were, and showed that he was far more powerful than all their weird gods and goddesses and bizarre pagan practices. So even clothing that touched this man's hands, God used to, it says here, brought to the sick and the diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. It's no wonder that in such an occult dominated world where people are literally asking demons to channel through them to you know lead and guide them that you had this sort of bizarre things that was happening here's what i'm learning here's the first principle god is a healer and god is a rescuer from darkness god 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 is a healer and it is extraordinary you know he doesn't always work and often does not work in miraculous ways um and, and we're Westerners. This sort of environment in Ephesus is foreign to us. Now, if you go to India, that's very similar, actually. I mean, I've been to India 14 or 15 times. There are 300 million gods and goddesses in the nation of India. 300 million. There are idols everywhere. It's a very similar sort of environment. And there's all sorts of strange things that go on. And by the way, some miraculous, amazing things happen there that you wouldn't typically see in Des Moines. Um, but God's a healer. And in our Western world, we rely on modern medicine, and I'm grateful for that. We, Ruth and I, over these last couple of years in particular, have been incredibly blessed by modern medicine. So 
Nothing against that. God uses modern medicine health professionals, and we thank God for every one of them, and including any of you who might be uh, taking part today. And Ruth and I have experienced healing in our prayers for other people. Um, I mean, her orthopedic nurse said, you know, you had your pelvis removed. It's called a pelvectomy. He said, Ruth, in all my years, you're only the second person who's ever had a pelvectomy who I've seen, who's ever walked again. Wow. God's a healer. He uses medicine. He uses prayer, the prayers of his people. He directly heals people. He does in all sorts of ways. As elders, we have prayed for people, very seriously ill people, and we have seen God work, anointing with oil and praying that God would heal. It's mysterious. I don't know how God works in all these things because sometimes he brings immediate healing. Sometimes he brings uh, healing over time. Sometimes he uses medicines and health professionals and doctors and surgeries. And sometimes he doesn't heal at all. I mean, in the way that we see anyway. But he will one day heal everything for those who believe. God is a healer. And much of the world including these folks at Ephesus, did not have access then and even today to modern medicine. And so believers around the world, what do they do when they get sick? They pray. They ask God to heal them. They have no access to medicine. They have no access to surgery. They depend on God. And God graciously brings healing to their bodies. So what I want us to understand is God is a healer. And we don't want to become what I would call deists, that is, that we just believe that kind of God kind of made us and then kind of stepped back. And so when we're taking medicine or when we're going into a surgery, we don't believe those work automatically. We're trusting and praying and seeking God. And we're seeking for healing. So God's a healer. Do you need healing today? You can ask God. You can ask your friends, your life group. You can if you're sick and, and for some reason you need an elder or an elders to come and pray and anoint you with oil, like James tells us to, we will do that and we will pray with you. Humbly ask him, boldly ask him and let his will be done. He's also a rescuer. Do you need rescue from darkness? Maybe the world's become a really dark place for you. Maybe you have sensed an oppression from Satan accusing you or from oppressors around you, abusive people, whatever it might be. Um, God is a rescuer. And I want to encourage you that, that God is able to deliver. In the Western world, we kind of downplay the whole demonic, evil spirits, that sort of thing. Some even believers disbelieve they exist. They're very skeptical. Jesus Christ taught us that Satan is real, that he has spiritual forces that are real, and they're bent on our destruction. They want to destroy our families. They want to destroy our faith. They want to destroy our communities, our civilization, and there, we, we need to realize that we're in a spiritual battle. 
we can overplay that and there can be an overreaction and you know people like this that you know there's a demon behind every bush and every single thing that ever goes wrong is attributed to Satan or to demonic forces or whatever and guys we don't need to go crazy over this we don't need to go weird all right but I, I remember, like, for example, one time somebody um, got a, I got a sunburn um, because I have this Irish complexion. I got a sunburn, and they're, like, praying for me, and they say, be gone, demon of sunburn. And I said, that isn't anything about Satan. That's about me not putting on sunscreen and being out too long in the sun. <laughs> Don't attribute that to Satan, <laughs> okay? So let's not get weird about this, okay? But let's also have a biblical balance of the spiritual forces of darkness that are real. Not to be afraid, be aware, and pray to a great, big, mighty God who is far more powerful than all the forces of darkness. Now, it's interesting, in the New Testament, we are not given very many instructions about, you know, what we see Paul doing here, you know, casting out these demons, or what Jesus did. And in fact, it's pretty rare in the New Testament. In fact, you never get a word of it in any of the letters to all the churches that we have. But got some good news for you. We do have a letter written to this church, Ephesus, who lived in this context. We have a letter to this very church we've just been reading about where all this crazy occult and demonic activity is going. And we can read this letter and know exactly what he told them to do about uh, the forces of darkness. And I just want to read it to you and say, this is what we all should be doing. Okay, here we go. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. All right, here it is. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Be powerful in him. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Yes, he's scheming against you, but put on the full armor of God. What's that? Okay, glad you asked. He says, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not people. They're not our enemies ultimately. They're victims of a fallen world, a world where our accuser and our enemy of our souls, Satan, is alive and well. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and these are talking about spiritual rulers and authorities, not, not government officials, okay, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. That's the reality, then and now. For this reason, here, he says, take up the full armor of God. Now, here's how you do it. Here's how you come against this. Here's how you stand strong so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. You don't, won't fall. You won't be afraid. And therefore, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. The word of God is, 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 is right around you, completely enveloping you. Righteousness like armor in your chest Believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you stand righteous before a holy God and believing in the way of Jesus, the way of righteousness, and say, I'm going to walk in Jesus, I'm going to walk in the light, I'm going to walk in righteousness, that's armor on your chest. 
and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. So put your gospel shoes on and be ready to take the good news into your family situations, into your workplace, into your community, into those hard situations of life. You got the gospel on your shoes and you're ready to walk and you're ready to bring that message to others as well. Verse 16, in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So the shield of faith is that trust in God. And we're saying, I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my faith, how much I can work myself up to believe. I'm putting up faith as a trust in God and saying, he can protect me against all the assaults, all the flaming arrows of the evil one, the temptations, the accuser that he is, the guilt, the shame, the manipulation that he wants to bring into our lives. You can guard yourself just like this Ephesian church did 2,000 years ago. Here's how you do it. It's not weird stuff. It's just normal Christian living stuff that we've talked about, but sometimes we've forgotten, okay? So take up the shield of faith, trusting in the promises of God, trusting in his righteousness and strength, Take the helmet of salvation, that is, knowing Jesus Christ, your relationship with God, protecting your mind with the way of Jesus, with the salvation uh, to save you from your sins, past, present, and future, to guide you and to protect you in the battle. Don't go out without your helmet on, the helmet of I stand in Christ and his salvation through faith by his grace alone. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the only offensive weapon in any of this ever mentioned is the word of God, the sword of the spirit, right? So we take the word of God and we say, I'm gonna use this to read, to study, to learn, to apply, to walk in, to remember the promises and to follow its guidance and wisdom. And that's your best protection in this world of filled with the powers of darkness against us. And then finally he says, pray at all times of the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. So wake up, keep praying, watch out, and don't be afraid. Put on the full armor every single day, okay? So here we go. God's a healer and God's a rescuer and he tells us how to be protected in these passages. Read it again, uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 uh, this week and, and talk about it in your life groups. These are the instructions given to this very specific church who is facing these very issues and we also should follow them. So I'm not talking about manipulative, weird prayer chants, um, weird incantations, bizarre rituals or some working yourself up into some kind of spiritual frenzy or what? I, I, no, please. Go on. Verse 13. So Paul's doing these miracles. Now some of the Jew, itinerant Jewish exorcists, that's somebody you don't meet every day, uh, also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the, the Jesus that Paul preaches. So they didn't actually believe in Jesus as Messiah, but they thought they would use the name of Jesus because seemed to have power. Interesting. Seven sons of Sceva, that's kind of some kind of roaming troop of exorcists. This is a weird world, guys. Uh, Sceva was a Jewish high priest. They were doing this. 
And the evil spirit answered them. When they're trying to use the name of Jesus, I know Jesus. I recognize Paul. Who are you? Who are you? What do you think you're doing? Then the man who had the evil spirit that they were trying to confront jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. That's a different day. And when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. So here's the principle. Jesus will be glorified, not manipulated. Guys, some people use Jesus as like a good luck charm. He's like a rabbit's foot. They kind of, you know, want to whatever. They're like this, you know, name that I can kind of use and manipulate. And, and Jesus is, is not a name to be trifled with. It's not a name to be a power to be used in spite of what you may have heard in some churches or places or some force to be channeled in some bizarre fashion. In fact, we're learning here, don't mess around with Jesus. Believe in him, follow him, obey him. But if you think you're going to somehow use the name of Jesus and you know, kind of your own ways of doing this. He's incredibly power, powerful, but he is not your power tool. He's in a powerful God, but Jesus is not a chainsaw you wield. He's God. He's not a power you manipulate. He's God. He is Lord. So we trust in him, but we dare never cross over the line where we think that by you know, somehow manipulating him, especially for people that are not believers in Jesus. Um, Jesus is Lord. Honor him, respect him, follow him, fear him, worship him. But you're playing with fire if you're dabbling in the occult like these folks were and didn't believe in Jesus and thought that was going to get them somewhere. Keep going. Verse 18. And many who had become believers in Jesus came confessing and disclosing their practices. When, 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 when people saw that Jesus Christ was incredibly powerful and that he wasn't to be trifled with, people held him in high esteem. And the believers said, okay, they confessed their sins and they disclosed their practices. So these people that have been involved in witchcraft and occult practices and this weird uh, stuff... Uh, they, they disclose their practice. They openly confess them. And they, many of them, it says, who practiced magic, collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. They said, we're done with that. We renounce dark ways. We renounce evil ways. So they calculated their value and, it fa- and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver up in smoke. Those dark arts, occult practice books were worth millions of dollars. They didn't sell them on eBay. They didn't try to, you know, shop them on Facebook, Marketplace. They said, we're done. And we don't want anybody to to trifle or to mess with this. So here's the lesson of all of this, is that if there's any darkness in our lives at all, 
we're to distance ourselves from it. We're to renounce it. And there comes a time when Jesus is more valuable than all our stuff. Here's a principle number three. Knowing Jesus, knowing God, revolutionizes our personal worldview, our conduct, and our values. You saw them completely turn their lives around and said, okay, I'm turning away from evil and I'm done with it. And maybe there's somebody here today that you're still dabbling in stuff. It doesn't have to be occult stuff, but it's not good and you know it. And maybe it's, maybe it's in financial area. Maybe it's in an integrity area. Maybe it's in a sexual area. Maybe it's, um, you know, some kind of ethical issue. Renounce it. You may need to confess that to someone. Burn it. Get away from it. Flee from it. That's what they did. Let's keep ourselves from being allured and trapped by these idols, even in the most subtle of ways. And let Jesus become more valuable to us than, than millions of dollars. Because he was to them, and he is to us. Has God begun to transform the value you place on your stuff? Especially the bad stuff. And our possessions can become so important to us that we're not willing to part from them, even if they're actually bringing us down. What is one area in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, that God has brought you transformation, that you've seen him set you free from some past? Celebrate that today with me, because he's a big God. Don't underestimate him, and believe that he can do something powerful about whatever you, temptation or darkness or issue you may face. Verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. The word of the Lord just went like wildfire. Because the people of God were taking Jesus seriously, the people around them in the community took them seriously. Because they said, this guy's, he, Jesus is a real deal. And these people are, are serious about it. So here's the pr principle, number four. Outsiders to the faith pay attention when insiders revere and delight in God. When they start getting excited about their faith and they start living it out and it starts changing and transforming them, people in our community see that and they sit up and take notice. Verse 21, after these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. So he's got a, he's got a plan of action he, to advance the mission of Jesus to the center of the empire, Rome itself. And after sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. He ends up spending a total of three years in Ephesus. But God had a, had a hold of his spirit, and the gospel just transformed him. And here's the principle, last one for today. God's spirit compels us to seek ways to advance his kingdom. When you really understand and don't underestimate God and realize how powerful he is, how life-transforming he is, how amazing he is, you want the world to know. You, you want other people to get on board and to understand that this is an amazing thing that God offers to you, his grace and mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. And you can be done with darkness and you can come into the light. Get onto this train. Get off the sidelines and get into the game. You know, somebody said that the average church on Sundays resembles an NFL stadium on Sunday as well. And that is 22 people on the field desperately in need of rest. And 50,000 people, spectators in the stands, desperately in need of exercise. 
Don't be content to watch others advance the kingdom of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. You get involved. You get involved in the mission of Jesus' church. And that can start very simple. Just don't underestimate what God could do through you. That could be simply saying, okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll come to the great pumpkin party and I'll, I'll bring my friends. It's coming up, right? It's coming up soon. A week. And this, it's a simple first step. Just come to the great pumpkin party and invite some people to come. It's their first contact maybe with the church of Jesus Christ. And then go a step further. You can volunteer and say, I want to meet people in our community. I want to show the joy and the love that I have for our neighbors. It's just a simple way that you can get involved. So come, invite people, and volunteer. That's just a simple way, the simplest of way to get involved in the mission. You don't have to go to Asia. You can start right here. All right, And then think about all the ways you can love and influence people in the days ahead. Leverage the holidays. Use Thanksgiving to welcome people into your life. Thanks, Christmas, that's in December. What an opportunity to advance the good news of Jesus in our world. New Year's Day, it's a new start. You can, you can use that to have people into your home to celebrate and just be friends and neighbors. And then you come to February and you got the most sacred of all American holidays, Super Bowl weekend, right? And you can, <laughs> right? You can join with people and say, let's watch some football together, and I'll be your friend. And you'll live your faith in front of them, and you won't be ashamed of the good news of Jesus. It would be amazing. Today, um, to everybody here in person, I have a little card, and I would love for you to write on this card something that you're praying today to God. And if you're in person, I would like you to come during the final song and just place that down at the front at a table or on the platform here in the auditorium. Um, uh, and say, this is what I'm praying. Can you join me in prayer right now? Father, we can so underestimate you, either by not believing that you have the power to help us, to rescue us, to deliver us, or by not giving you the love, the respect, and the honor that is due your name. So right now, Lord, each one of us want to respond to this message in some personal way. We want to pray for healing. We want to pray for release from darkness, deliverance. We want to confess before you our sins, the dark areas of our lives. We, we want to surrender to you anything that's holding us back from following you wholeheartedly and surrender that to you and say, I'm all in. Well, Lord, we want some of us to make new commitments to pursue the light in, in an area that we haven't maybe pursued it currently. Uh, some of us want to take that first step of faith and trust in you and believe that you died for my sins and you rose again. And some of us are, are going to, today, we're praying that you would help use us to advance the mission, the good news of Jesus in this world, that we would truly light up the darkness in this dark world. Use us, oh God. You're a great, big, awesome God. We never want to underestimate what you can do. Yourself and through your people. And everybody agreed and said, amen. God bless every single one of you.